The Generator. The Generator. The Generator News. The Generator. The Generator News. By selling off our country with inflated prices, it gives us a delusion that we're actually doing well. Energy matters. Living sustainably. A lifetime of war. Climate chaos. Local food action. The computer models used to predict climate chaos have not taken Arctic forest fires into account. A lifetime of war. Marine wash. Energy matters. Sustainable settlement. Local food. Climate chaos. A generator. Then I knew. In the Generator News for the week of Monday the 27th of February 2017, the Great Barrier Reef faces new bleaching events, Norway puts $10 million towards family planning, Australian renewables to boom this year, UK rations fresh vegetables due to climate chaos, French government threatens the autonomous zone. For pictures and background links to our sources, visit thegenerator.news on Facebook or the web. The Great Barrier Reef is at elevated and in imminent risk of widespread coral bleaching again this year, according to the Great Barrier Reef Marine Park Authority. The authority told the Queensland Government in a briefing note that an unusually warm winter and a second warm summer has resulted in more heat stress accumulating in more areas than at this time last year. Though new research from the University of Sydney examining ancient reef core samples reveal the reef had once survived a sea level rise similar to that currently predicted, scientists warn extra threats such as human-induced global warming, pesticide runoff, dredge spoils and ocean acidification could kill off this reef before it has time to recover. Norway has just donated 10 million US dollars to the international campaign to provide family planning services for the world's most vulnerable women. This is in response to the US Republican Party's global gag rule. The fund was started by the Netherlands and has commitments from Sweden, Denmark, Belgium, Luxembourg, Finland, Canada and Cape Verde. The US gag rule removes international aid funding from any group that provides or promotes family planning services. It has been enacted by every US Republican president since Reagan and subsequently repealed by each Democrat president. The current administration has deepened the cuts, defunding any organisation that refers women to family planning services. Australian Foreign Minister Julie Bishop has also defied the rule. Australia has the opportunity to be a renewable energy superpower, Professor Ross Garnaut said last week. Somewhere else in the developed world are wind and solar so abundant. He told, an, he told an energy conference in South Australia. Separately, the renewable energy economic newspaper Renew Economy predicted that the renewable energy market will explode during 2017, with the costs of domestic and industrial solar generation falling well below traditional forms of electricity. Lee Storr, the CEO of BioSolar, told The Cage in 2014 that this year would be a watershed year as domestic panels and battery storages storage would become cheaper than retail electricity. A number of times this month, industry and the resource sector have demanded stable, bipartisan, long-term energy policy from politicians. Fresh vegetables were rationed across the UK this month due to climate chaos in southern Europe. Lettuces, zucchinis and broccoli were rationed and prices rose to four times their normal level. The shortage was exacerbated by uncertain trading arrangements due to Brexit. UK supermarkets have embarked on a program of culling fruit and vegetables that are increasingly difficult to grow in areas with ongoing water shortages. 
The events have revealed the multiple challenges to global trade from water shortages, climate chaos and protectionism, reinforcing the need to support local produce. Australia is extremely vulnerable to such events. The nation has been a net importer of fresh fruit and vegetables since 2003, a fact masked by our large grain and meat exports. In the lead-up to the French presidential election, the French government has promised to destroy a rebellious community of 2,000 activists that have squatted for eight years on the side of a proposed airport in Nantes. Known as ZAD, ZAD, the Zone to Defend, the movement has inspired a range of protests against useless development across Europe. ZAD has its own farms, bakery and radio station and is home to 200 permanent residents and houses up to 2,000 people. It survived 2012's eviction attack attempt mounted by 1,000 armed police with helicopters and military equipment. With renewed threats to their existence, the Zaydists have begun publishing internationally in an appeal for broad support. You have been listening to The Generator News in the cage. You can follow The Generator on Facebook or the web at The Generator News. The web and Facebook page for The Cage is cage.live. The Cage is broadcast across the Pacific from the studios of 4ZZZ FM in Brisbane, Australia. Lock yourself in. Yes, lock yourself in for the rest of this hour with me, Jeff Ebbs and Maddie Watt. We are going to discuss Chinese phonographer Ran Hang, who met with disaster at his own hand on Friday. We're going to hear from the man who challenges the man who stands between Australia and World War Three. Regular listeners to the cage will know exactly who we mean and we will tear apart the generator news which you have just heard with John James of the eponymous newsletter. Uh, Before we get to that, as usual though, we will hear the rant of the week. Now, in the rant of the week, over the last month since Martin Luther King Day in mid-January, we've run quite a few passionate and articulate Uh, poems, songs, speeches about racism in the US and some of the comments we've got from you, dear listener, via cage.live that's our Facebook page and website so facebook.com slash cage.live you can see uh, what we're talking about what we're posting there Um, and our also um, via the SMS line 0449 that's 0449 636 101 you can SMS us during the show and we will uh, discuss your comments so while we've been playing some of these passionate rants of the week about racism we've had a few comments along the lines that perhaps racism isn't the biggest problem facing us as Australians uh, Tomic Majeski, for example posted us a little while ago saying that he felt that um, we were more tuned to class uh, issues than race issues and we would forgive people their racial characteristics if they were successful I thought we'd play a little snip from Stan Grant on an IQ squared debate last year here's 
Stan Grant. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming along this evening and I would also like to extend my respects to my Gadigal brothers and sisters from my people, the Wiradjuri people. In the winter of 2015, Australia turned to face itself. It looked into its soul and it had to ask this question, who are we? What sort of country do we want to be? And this happened in a place that is most holy, most sacred to Australians. It happened in the sporting field. It happened on the football field. Suddenly, the front page was on the back page. It was in the grandstands. Thousands of voices rose to hound an Indigenous man, a man who was told he was an Australian, a man who was told he was an Australian of the year. And they hounded that man into submission. I can't speak for what lay in the hearts of the people who booed Adam Goods, but I can tell you what we heard when we heard those boos. We heard a sound that was very familiar to us. We heard a howl. We heard a howl of humiliation that echoes across two centuries of dispossession, injustice, suffering and survival. We heard the howl of the Australian dream, and it said to us again, you're not welcome. The Australian dream. We sing of it, and we recite it in verse. Australians all, let us rejoice, for we are young and free. My people die young in this country. We die 10 years younger than average Australians, and we are far from free. We are fewer than 3% of the Australian population and yet we are 25%, a quarter of those Australians, locked up in our prisons. And if you are a juvenile, it is worse. It is 50%. An Indigenous child is more likely to be locked up in prison than they are to finish high school. I love a sunburned country, a land of sweeping plains of rugged mountain ranges. Reminds me that my people were killed on those plains. We were shot on those plains. Disease ravaged us on those plains. I come from those plains. I come from a people west of the Blue Mountains, the Wiradjuri people, where in the 1820s, the soldiers and settlers waged a war of extermination against my people. Yes, a war of extermination. That was the language used at the time. Go to the Sydney Gazette and look it up and read about it. Martial law was declared and my people could be shot on sight. Those rugged mountain ranges, my people, women and children were herded over those ranges to their deaths. The Australian dream. The Australian dream is rooted in racism. It is the very foundation of the dream. It is there at the birth of the nation. It is there in terra nullius, an empty land, a land for the taking. 60,000 years of occupation a people who made the first seafaring journey in the history of mankind. A people of law, a people of lore, L-O-R-E, a people of music and art and dance and politics, none of it mattered because our rights were extinguished because we were not here according to British law. And when British people looked at us, they saw something subhuman and if we were human at all, we occupied the lowest rung on civilization's ladder. We were fly-blown Stone Age savages, and that was the language that was used. Charles Dickens, the great writer of the age, when referring to the noble savage of which we were counted among, 
said it would be better that they be wiped off the face of the earth. Captain Arthur Philip, a man of enlightenment, a man who was instructed to make peace with the so-called natives in a matter of years, was sending out raiding parties with the instruction, bring back the severed heads of the black troublemakers. They were smoothing the dying pillow. My people were rounded up and put on missions from where, if you escaped, you were hunted down, you were roped and tied and dragged back, and it happened here, it happened on the mission that my grandmother and my great-grandmother are from at Warren Gesder on the Darling Point at the Murrumbidgee River. Read about it, it happened. By 1901, when we became a nation, when we federated the colonies, we were nowhere. We're not in the Constitution, save for race provisions, which allowed for laws to be made that would take our children, that would invade our privacy, that would tell us who we could marry and tell us where we could live, the Australian dream. By 1963, the year of my birth, the dispossession was continuing. Police came at gunpoint, under cover of darkness, to Mapoon, an Aboriginal community in Queensland, and they ordered people from their homes, and they burned those homes to the ground, and they gave the land to a bauxite mining company, and today those people remember that as the night of the burning. In 1963, when I was born, I was counted among the flora and fauna, not among the citizens of this country. Now, you will hear things tonight, you will hear people say, but you've done well. Yes, I have. And I'm proud of it. And why have I done well? I've done well because of who has come before me. My father, who lost the tips of three fingers working in sawmills to put food on our table because he was denied an education. My grandfather, who served to fight wars for this country when he was not yet a citizen and came back to a segregated land where he couldn't even share a drink with his digger mates in the pub because he was black. My great-grandfather, who was jailed for speaking his language to his grandson, my father, jailed for it. My grandfather on my mother's side, who married a white woman who reached out to Australia, lived on the fringes of town until the police came, put a gun to his head, bulldozed his tin humpy and ran over the graves of the three children he buried there. That's the Australian dream. I have succeeded in spite of the Australian dream, not because of it, and I have succeeded because of those people. You might hear tonight, but you have white blood in you, and if the white blood in me was here tonight, my grandmother, she would tell you of how she was turned away from a hospital, giving birth to her first child because she was giving birth to the child of a black person. Well then, I'll take away your radio. Well then, I'll take away your radio. Oh, but Dad, you know I can simply pick up the announcer's voice directly with my super hearing. For triple that. FM 102, you're on a different wavelength. And we're going to be talking about Ren Hang, the very famous Chinese photographer who recently, sadly, passed away uh, this on Friday. And he's, he's one of my favourite photographers, actually, because his work really translates to the fact that... Well, he, he, photograph, he photographs a lot of people, but mostly his friends. He says he feels most comfortable photographing his friends. And you can see that in his photographs. Like, you know, they're very comfortable doing sometimes contorted positions, you know, with friends uh, looking like they're, you know, been kind of 
carefully they're like carefully placed dolls if you can imagine um they're quite intense and personal photographs though they they are i mean he shows off the human form both female and male and he does show a lot of uh, genitalia but it's in a way that isn't confronting or shocking i mean obviously some people they're going to look at it and they'll be a little bit shocked and i think that's the way that everyone's kind of been raised but it's it's this showing of how in a lot of media asian bodies are either hypersexualized or desexualized and he actually said uh once that he wanted to show that chinese people and also asian people you know we're just the same as everyone else you know we're sexual we have a sexuality but it doesn't have to be erased or you know hyper realized about it it's interesting that um art that explicitly d- deals with sexuality always walks that line between sensationalizing or you know appealing to the, <laughs> the sort yeah, of exactly. aspects of well, the media i mean he he was actually censored by the chinese government a lot he would have his websites mysteriously taken down he would have if he had any exhibits they would be taken down or they'd be defaced i mean he was really embraced more by outside of china even even though in china there is a very uh small t- knit group of lgbtq artists um but obviously you know with censorship and all and he says that he was never actually wanting to be political he ne- he never really thought of his work as that but i feel like his work is inherently political in a way in a, you know in a country where uh you know and so why do you think it was heavily censored if he didn't see himself as political well maybe he didn't see it but i feel like a lot of people would see that as political i mean because I say our way as a Chinese artist who's censored a lot by the uh, government that many Australians know about because we've had exhibitions of his here and I saw some documentaries about him at the Brisbane Asia Pacific Film Festival this a couple is of I, years ago. I pay. I, I can never uh, say his name correctly. Uh, we'll we'll um, get his name and put it up on the uh, Facebook page. So at the moment on f- Facebook dot com slash cage dot live we've got a uh, pointer to ren hung and an article um about yeah by the british journal of photography is a little bit of a tribute to him and his work and it's it's really sad that he's passed away and i think that's another thing um a lot of the articles about him you know they do reference his passing but only one of them actually explicitly say that he has taken his sadly taken his own life and that's the thing that he actually talked about a lot on his blog. He actually had a blog um, and he would write about his depression. It was called My Depression. And it was almost, if you uh, were lucky enough to be able to translate into English without um, a shoddy Google Translate, <laughs> then you actually got to um, see some really beautiful poetry into his sad sadness. If I don't know how to describe it. It was beautiful the way he would sometimes describe. And um, so did his sadness and uh, depression relate to the nature of his art or was that a parallel sort of thought i think it might have been parallel i feel like a lot of his art is uh it's not exactly sad and it's not exactly happy but it's kind of this uh middle ground of um kind of contentment or 
being comfortable. I mean, he, you can tell the relationship between the photographer and the person being photographed is really natural and comfortable. Everyone is totally happy doing, you know, maybe holding a snake, holding a peacock, um, you know, looking through another friend's legs naked, um, peering mm. into the water. It's it's all very comfortable and beautiful and very natural. Whereas this photographer, he's been compared to like Terry Richardson, the creepy American photographer. Um, but I feel like the difference between those two photographers is that Terry Richardson's photographs are kind of borderline creepy slash exploitation. So you think Terry Richardson's trying to find and explore that line line to get some infamy for himself, perhaps? Yeah, I guess. But it, but I think with Ren Hang, it's more the beauty in the human form, whereas with Terry Richardson, it's more like. How can I make money from the human form? <laughs> uh, I had a friend who, she was a photographer, did a series called Polite Pornography. And so we lined up and we filmed uh, the back of our knees or our armpits, and, you know, <laughs> parts of our body that are kind of gross to look at. Mm. And so have that, you know, same characteristic of genitalia that they're not necessarily, you know, the things about the human form that we normally um, draw or yeah. whatever. Well, I think a lot of high school students did that when they would uh, put their arms together and take a photo of yeah, the yeah, sure. between so, your elbow and your um, forearm so it looks like a butt. Mm. <laughs> Similar to that, but that's a bit the, more juvenile. Yeah, there was a bit of a story about polite pornography too. It was a misunderstanding of some song lyrics that were the, the light pours out of me and she'd thought that the song was called polite pornography instead of the light pours <laughs> out of me. And she thought, that's a great concept. I might do a series of artwork on that. But yeah, that explored that kind of boundary mm. too, becoming the other way, but, you know, not what controversial we normally, yeah. or... But we sometimes, you know, the parts of the body that we like to forget or we like to erase, you know, through hair removal or whatnot. (laughs) Airbrush. (laughs) Airbrush out, yeah, exactly. So the article that we've linked to in the British Journal of Photography, does that discuss his um, death at his own hand? I believe it is heavily implied, but it's, Mm. it's a very short article. It's just a little mini tribute to him but there's a lot of articles out now already since um, his passing on Friday that I think do discuss it a little bit more in depth. Well certainly dear listener you can find out more about Ren Hang through uh, facebook.com slash cage.live that link there or doing your own search in your favourite search engine. You are in the cage on the Zeds with Maddie Watt and Jeff Ebbs. Uh, we'll be Joined shortly by Michael Smith, a journalist and ex-ministerial advisor from central Victoria. Why is a Queensland-based show talking to a man from central Victoria? Because last December he walked all the way to Canberra to uh, present to the Parliament of Australia a bill trying to take away the right of the Prime Minister to drag us into a war with nothing more than a single phone call. So, um, Michael Smith, you are in the cage. Good morning, uh, Jeff. How are you? Very well. You're a little quiet. I don't know if that's your end. We'll turn you up as much as we can here. 
Now, Michael, we've locked you in the cage so that you can uh, explain to us what you are doing to make this a better world. And my understanding is that your aim is to try and make us a little bit safer from war than we have been. That's right. Last October, November, I walked 600 kilometres from Tewson, a small town in central Victoria where I live, to Parliament House in Canberra with a draft bill that would require the Prime Minister to have to get the approval of the Parliament first before taking Australia into a war or deploying combat forces into another nation's territory. Well, that Our sounds situation... quite sort of normal and sensible. What's the situation at <laughs> present? Look, our situation since Federation 1901 is that the Parliament has no involvement at all. The Prime Minister, under current Australian law, is not required to consult Parliament and is not required to seek the Parliament's approval to take Australia into a war. And that's because the British monarch of centuries past had what's called a royal prerogative to declare war, bypassing the British Parliament and we inherited that system when we became a federation in 1901. Isn't there a... And it, um, just seems, it just seems incredible to me that our parliament has no say at all in these decisions and that the parliament should have a say. Isn't there a practical element to that, though, that governments feel like they need the right to move swiftly and make decisions without the baggage of carrying a whole parliament with them? I mean, if you're going to respond to an aggressor you don't want to have to sit around and chat about whether you're going to punch him in the nose or not well look i think that's a very very reasonable question and uh, you know something that is is absolutely worth discussing my view always is that i think a moment's pause would, is a very good thing even if it's only 24 hours and i think it can be you know a, a knee-jerk reaction an immediate knee-jerk reaction an emotional response uh, is not always the best thing. Parliament can be recalled in 24 hours notice. So if something sudden happened, uh, the parliament could be assembled in 24 hours to consider things. But I think if one person is making the decision very short notice without consulting the cabinet and without consulting the parliament, there's no accountability. How do we know that he's doing what's in our best interest? How do we know what's the motivation for his response? How do we know, like the invasion of Iraq in 2003, that the intelligence that he's basing that on is not faulty, as that intelligence was? So I think the more people that are involved, for example, our parliament, then the better and more careful consideration we're going to get. I also think that if we knee-jerk respond straight away, it's just more tit-for-tat. And we know that these wars and violence don't solve anything. In the last 15 years, we've had more wars than we've had for a very long time. They don't seem to be making things better. They seem to be making things worse. So I think if Parliament could have a say, representing the views of you and me and everybody else in the community before we push the button and drop a bomb on Syria or send ships or send soldiers, I think that's going to help us move to a more sustainable position that ultimately leads to less conflict and more peace. 
Now, from the conversations that we had last year as you were walking towards Parliament, there seemed to be a huge groundswell of support from the people you met along the way. What sort of reaction did you get from parliamentarians? Look, a number of them contacted me during the walk and said, yes, this is interesting. I would like to meet with you and talk to you. I met with Green senators. They've been pushing this idea for some time. In fact, the idea in Australia first started back in 1985 with Don Chip and the Australian Democrats. And there have been several attempts since then to try and get this type of legislation into our parliament, but they've not really got past first base. Uh, another group that Lisa Chester's for the Labor Party, who is my local member for Bendigo in Central Victoria, she met me at the Parliament House when I arrived, and she made a statement to the House uh, talking about my walk and the legislation, and said at the very least these things should be discussed by the Parliament. And she said she would raise that in the Labor Caucus. And there were a number of independents and One Nation senators. Uh, in the Senate who were very interested as well. And one of those was the One Nation Senator, Malcolm Roberts. And he actually met me on the lawn out front when I arrived and videoed an interview with me. And then I later met with him and his staff and a number of other people in his office. So uh, what's the current situation then? Well, look, they gave me a very good hearing and they were very interested and they said then, back in November, on November 23, this seems very, very reasonable. Uh, two weeks ago in the Senate, on February the 9th, Senator Malcolm Roberts for One Nation got up and said they, in fact, do support the proposal um, with some qualifications. He said that it was a very reasonable proposal that all members and senators should have awareness of the circumstances surrounding any deployment and that the parliament should be able to discuss it and debate it. He doesn't agree that the uh, authority of the parliament should be required into, in order to deploy troops or take Australia into a war. He believes that would uh, compromise the government's ability to defend itself, to, for Australia to defend itself. But he does say we do support the principle of this, that there needs to be parliamentary involvement, that the Prime Minister should consult the Parliament, that the members and senators should be given confidential briefings uh, about the circumstances surrounding it, and that in the event of any deployment, there needs to be within three months a discussion and debate in the Parliament and a review. And is there anything That's similar huge... happening um, around the world with this bill? Any any countries that have anything similar in their legislation? Hi, Maddie. How are you going? Good, thanks. <laughs> uh, well, in fact, Britain, the mother country, if you like, um, late last year, Baroness Falconer, who is a Liberal Democrat, uh, she's in the upper house, the House of Lords, she introduced similar legislation and that has progressed in the British Parliament to what's called the committee stage. It hasn't yet been adopted, but it is progressing. It hasn't been knocked out and kicked down yet. And what's interesting is that the British Parliament already has moved a step ahead of Australia in creating what's called a convention that any deployment decision or any deployment consideration be debated in the Parliament first. You're probably aware that Tony Blair, the former Prime Minister there, came under a lot of criticism for um, Britain going into the, the invasion of Iraq in 2003 
and the British public were very, very angry about that, and so the British Parliament has bowed to their demands for more accountability. And now the British Parliament has a convention where it will discuss and debate in the Parliament any decision or any um, thought of deploying troops. That's more than we do in Australia. And one of the interesting things that Malcolm Roberts for One Nation said two weeks ago in the Senate, he recalled watching uh, an interview with Alexander Downer, our former foreign minister, when Mr Downer retired. And Alexander said when John Howard was in New York during the 9-11 bombing and came back to Australia, he went to the Cabinet and he said, we're going into Iraq. There was no discussion, no debate. He just told them. And Senator Malcolm Roberts said two weeks ago, not good enough. So do you think this bill that is about to possibly pass in Parliament in England, do you think this could be the push uh, that Australia needs to follow through if it gets through in England? I think it should give our MPs and Senators confidence that this is appropriate, that it's the right thing to do for a proper parliamentary democracy. So I see it certainly as the part of the wave of support of moving in this direction. I think it should give our MPs and Senators confidence. I was quite surprised to receive a letter from our Defence Minister in the Turnbull Government, Maurice Payne, say no, she believes that the Prime Minister and Cabinet should make the decision and that there shouldn't be parliamentary um, discussion and consideration. And I just don't think that is a sustainable position. So what is the next step in your campaigning for this uh, change, Michael? Well, I'm in touch with the various senators and MPs who expressed an interest in this last year, including uh, Senator Malcolm Roberts and the Greens. And it's really now up to the Greens. They put forward a bill in 2015. That's sort of been parked for the time being. But this response from Malcolm Roberts is the first time that a party on the right has declared there should be parliamentary involvement in war decisions. It's now up to... And they've moved three amendments to the Greens' bill. It's now really up to the Greens to see whether or not they accept those amendments. If they do, or if those two parties... And it's extraordinary that the Greens and One Nation, two extremes, if you like, at the opposite end of the spectrum, it's rather wonderful that they're actually agreeing on something and working together. I think that's a really positive sign. It's now up to the Greens to see whether they are happy with those amendments and then what they'll do with their bill. But what I think is the breakthrough is that a party on the right for the very first time, and One Nation is very close to the Turnbull government, has said, this is right, this is appropriate, our parliament needs to be involved. Well, good on you, Michael, for taking this issue up to the parliament and... Uh, exercising your right as a citizen to uh, make those servants of the public serve the public. And <laughs> well, well, Jeff and Maddie, congratulations to you because you're doing a very big job in letting more people know about it. So we're all in this together and I think that's a really good thing. So thank you very much to you. Oh, well, on that note, we will eject you from the cage. <laughs> thank you very it much for your... Pleasure. Thank you very much again for your time and for your efforts, Michael. Thank you. You are in the cage on the Zeds with Matty Watt and Jeff Eds. And on 4ZZZ, you are in the cage with Matty Watt and Jeff Ebbs.
Now, in the Generator News today, Maddie, there was a story about the UK supermarkets rationing broccoli, lettuce and zucchini, or courgettes as they're called in the UK. <laughs> and it was directly um, climate chaos related. Yeah, not war. It sounds like a wartime kind of rationing system, but no, it's just that... It's global warming. <laughs> One of the supermarket chains said the rain in Spain has not fallen on the plane, which was a you know sort of cute way of describing the problem. Um, hidden in that news story was the decision by a number of supermarkets to start phasing out food lines that are no longer viable. So Portuguese asparagus, for example, requires a lot of water and is grown in a region where the wells are running dry because mm. the water table has fallen. And so what we're seeing is, um, you know, one of the world's largest economies actually altering its uh, food supply system on the basis of climate. So if ever we needed a reminder that climate change is real, mm. that's it. The other thing that a lot of the newspapers have been talking about is the nature of global trade. And people who care about food miles, you know, spend a lot of time thinking about how far food travels, how much um, oil is or, you know, energy is consumed yes, in transport. I actually recently uh, read a petition and signed it, obviously, about um, the live export of uh, sheep and uh, cows and whatnot. And recently, I think, um, you know, with our summer that will never end kind of weekend that we had a couple weeks ago, uh, some lady, I think, in a rural area of Australia, she was driving one of those, you know, roads where no one's on, but apparently there was a huge uh, truck convoy, you know, trans uh, transferring sheep, and she said that she smelt the stank of death from this truck, and it was obvious that these animals were being transported in extreme heat uh, with no water, they're totally dehydrated, and, you know, they're dropping like flies. And I think that's also another thing to think about in terms of, you know, running out of food. It costs a lot of money to grow food, uh, you know, crops and all, but it also costs a lot of food and money to grow animals and also exporting them overseas. It costs a lot of money and costs a lot of water that apparently we're not using. Well, I think it would shock many Australians to know that uh, we are a net importer of fresh fruit and vegetables. We don't grow enough fresh food and vegetables to feed ourselves. Our food export, our balance of trade looks good because we export lots of grain and, as you've just said, lots of meat. Mm. So um, get out those gardening tools, start growing your own bits and pieces exactly. and support your local farmer's market. Let's turn our homes into centres of production, not nodes of consumption. And with that, it's time to eject ourselves from the cage for another week. You have been in the cage. Midday on Mondays, 4 Triple Z FM.